uh, John Bradley and Lynn Jimmy Mick, Dennis lived together in the same apartment. Jimmy and Dennis ran Crystal together. It's possible that Dennis may have killed Jimmy. When I was in jail with Dennis, he told me that when he gets out, he was going to get even with me, no matter what he had to do. I was supplying him with a place to live, like a hideout. He promised me all kinds of money that I never received, so I finally told him I wanted out. He did get pissed. When he lived with us, there was not a day gone by that he did not talk about how he could get away with killing someone. He does have access to just about any kind of gun he wants. He was thrown in jail for assault. He told me in jail he had thought he had killed this guy named Mike and was laughing about it. Jimmy had left Dennis, and it is possible that he could have taken some money or drugs for what he thought Dennis owed him, and Dennis would try and kill someone for that. I stayed with Dennis at his wife's apartment in Michigan. I lost a set of keys to the apartment. He told me that those keys were of major importance. And if people found out that I lost those keys, they would do bodily harm to me. That night, he told me that I could have anything in that apartment. The next morning, he was gone. He left a note saying I better leave the apartment or he would kill me, and that nothing better not be missing. The girls, had already taken stuff. He might have thought I ripped him off. These are the words of John Bradley's statement given to the Midlothian Police Department on October 5th of 1984 at 1.57 a.m. It's obvious from this statement that John was concerned Dennis might murder him and that Dennis might have already murdered Jimmy McCourt. John would be murdered eight months later. During the second trial, a man named Kenneth Wayne Ferris would testify that Dennis Mason had called him the night of the murders around 10 or 10.30 p.m. and said, and this is a direct quote from the trial transcript, John Bradley is dead. Ronald's attorney, Carl Mallory, had to put up a spirited fight to even get this into the trial transcript, fighting through objections. Ultimately, Kenneth said those words with the jury taken out of the room. Kenneth also testified it took himself and four other men to hold John Bradley down and stop him when he got into a fight at a party. The last question Carl Mallory asked Kenneth Ferris before passing the witness to the prosecution was, are you afraid of Dennis Mason as you sit here in this courtroom today? Kenneth replied, yes, I am. State prosecutor Bob Gill would challenge Kenneth's memory and Kenneth would admit he was a recently clean drug user and had previously given a statement indicating he wasn't as certain, but now was fully clean and was adamant this was the case. To Bob Gill, this was hearsay, but to Carl Mallory, it was as good as a confession. Who was right? Well, if what Kenneth said about the time was true, the timing of the call was the critical factor. Kenneth insisted he was certain of the time because he had just finished a party for a company he previously worked for, Parties Portable in Arlington. Why is that time important? Joanne Lemieux, according to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, did not arrive home until 10 or 10.15 p.m. And crime scene officers didn't discover John Bradley's body until over an hour after 10 p.m. And the news didn't go out over the radio until at least two hours after 10 p.m. So the obvious question is, if Dennis Mason called Kenneth Ferris around 10 or 10.30 p.m. and told him John Bradley was dead, how could he possibly have known that? But before Kenneth Wayne Ferris would testify at his second trial, in the run-up to the trial, Ronald Trimboli's case had changed venues. In May of 1987, according to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, 
Texas Supreme Court Justice C.L. Ray contacted Ronald's judge, Judge Cook, on behalf of Ronald's father. Here's how Ronald's daughter Lisa remembers it. What we didn't touch in is my grandfather working for the Boy Scouts of America was around a lot of lawyers and judges. And they knew um, my father, well, knew of my father, knew my grandfather. And I guess my grandfather, you know, talked to one of the judges about what was going on with my dad. A spokesman for the district attorney's office told the Star-Telegram that Justice Ray had called to make sure Ronald got a fair trial. This was forbidden by the state code of judicial conduct, and ultimately Cook was out, replaced by a new judge, John McLean, and a new venue, Cleburne, Texas, about 32 miles from Fort Worth and 47 miles from Arlington. While Ronald was on trial, the atmosphere around the trial affected his family outside the courtroom. According to Lisa, it was difficult for Ronald's wife, DC, to even find somewhere to live because of the situation. Being a tromboli, she couldn't get a place. People asked her questions. They said, "Is he? if he gets out, is he going to come live with you? All that kind of stuff. So the one thing that was going on is we couldn't grasp why are we having to prove his innocence? That was the one thing, the conversation that went on with, with my grandparents, amongst themselves, with me, is why? Why are we having to prove his innocence? If you've ever wondered what 50 pounds of trial transcripts look like, I could tell you. It's exactly enough to fit into one big roller suitcase. A suitcase I personally transported from Arlington, Texas to Southern California and sat and read thousands of pages. And it's all there. Reading the second trial transcripts in this way, it felt like sitting at the trial. I was able to get a full picture of the state's case against Ronald. Joanne Lemieux, Renee and Danielle's mother, testified at the second trial. In her testimony, she mentioned that the morning of the 17th, the same day of the murders, when she left for work, there was a pickup truck parked outside her house, a black pickup truck with two men inside. And it bothered her enough that she told the police and that she had never seen that truck before. Reading that in Joanne's testimony, I couldn't help but think back to Danielle's diary entry dated April 6th, where she says, I went to the lake with David, then he took me cruising Cooper. That night, one guy came up to the car and asked what I wanted. Then I went to a truck behind me and talked to them for a while. Ultimately, as with many other suspicious persons around this story, it was another footnote in the trial. Much more testimony was devoted to recounting Joanne's experience with Ronald's twilight visits. Remember the theory Detective Ford mentioned that Ronald had a sexual obsession with Danielle? If you track that theory forward, one argument you could make was that Ronald might have killed John Bradley out of some kind of jealousy. That was Detective Ford's position. I think what triggered it was the presence of John Bradley. I think that Tremboli was jealous. And perhaps uh, in Tremboli's mind, uh, Bradley was having sex with Danielle. But when Ronald saw that John Bradley, a stranger, was staying at Joanne's house, the full context of their exchange doesn't seem to support this theory. According to Joanne's testimony, Ronald initially asked who John Bradley was. And once Joanne explained that John had nowhere else to go, Joanne testified that Ronald replied, well, who am I to judge? That does not seem like the reaction of an angry person. Joanne also testified that she gave Ronald a glass of water to drink. 
Now, if you also recall, Detective Ford claimed that they had received reports of inappropriate behavior by Ronald towards Danielle. Mark and Lisa contest that. You'll hear Mark and Lisa refer to Hope and Chad here. Hope is Ronald's stepdaughter and Chad is his stepson. No. No, you know, that came from police reports that when the girls were still living in the apartment. Diamond they, tree apartment. The diamond tree apartments and DC and Hope and Chad lived in the same apartments that the girls often would sit in laps at the pool, would sit in laps of people mostly their age, some were a little bit older. That was just, there was never anything that said Tromboli. They were sitting on Tromboli's lap. It was other people. It was, you know. Other people around the pool, from not police re- Yeah, police reports. And Tromboli wasn't in, 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 in the picture in any of those. He just stretched that out. You know, Ford stretched that. If Ford did have these other reports, it would stand a reason he would use them and get whoever told him that to testify, as that would be very damaging to Ronald's defense. But if he did, none of those people testified. No one, except for Karen Frost. Karen was a neighbor. She testified she came home from work, got out of her car, and saw Danielle and Ronald Trimboli leaning against a car. She said Ronald had his arms around Danielle, and Karen thought that was unusual. Karen testified Danielle was squirming and trying to get away from Ronald, definitely uncomfortable, but not in a scared sort of way. According to Karen's testimony, there were several people around. Ronald and Danielle were not alone. Is it possible Karen misidentified Ronald? While I was in Texas, I went to where Karen would have stood when she saw Ronald with Mark and Lisa to look at the angle she would have been looking from and hear their position on the situation. So Karen, who saw uh, who said that she saw your dad touching uh, Danielle in the driveway. She saw her from here where we're right next to, which means that she would have had to see her. It's basically, we're behind the house. Right. right. So she would have to see her from her house, which is behind the house, into the driveway, which is a sort of awkward angle to see anybody. Right. Right. When the sun is setting to the west, which is that way. See, there's a there's a whole story behind that where she even came in the picture. The cops were doing, once Ron became a suspect, they were taking his picture around the neighborhood, showing mm-hmm. people. When they showed her, she said he looks familiar from the street. She sees him on the street, mm-hmm. up and down. Nothing was said about, you know, groping or touching Danielle inappropriately till a later time. What they did was... They did a mock lineup after she said that she had seen an older man touching Danielle inappropriately. They went back and got a mug shots of four or five other people, put the put him in the lineup of pictures to show her to for her to pick out a picture that she'd already seen <laughs> as the man she saw. Mm. See what I mean? I mean it was a you know, the the number one reason for wrongful convictions is false eyewitness identification. Although she did, nobody witnessed Ron leaving or coming to this house the day or night of the murders. She's the only one that placed him with Danielle, with Danielle inappropriately. Right. With a number of other teenagers hanging out at the same time. And nobody else ever said that. Mm-hmm. You know? Which would have been... 
like because my understanding is your dad was not socializing with these people routinely so it would have been strange for him to be weird yeah. like in the driveway hanging out absolutely and they would have the other teenagers would have thought it was weird right. absolutely and the only reason he ever came down here was to pick up hope if he if he did that. if he did that you know that was his only reason to be down here he didn't socialize with anybody to get her or to come home kids. or yeah. whatever again remember danielle wrote everything in her diary if you're a 14 year old girl and a grown man touches you in an uncomfortable way in front of other people wouldn't that be notable enough to include in a diary a diary so comprehensive that days where nothing happened were explicitly described Further, a friend of Danielle's, Jennifer Thomas, previously testified in front of a grand jury and said, in regards to Danielle and Ronald Tromboli, she never talked about him. And when asked, if he did something creepy or something she didn't like, do you think she would have told you about it? Jennifer replied, yes. In the same testimony, Jennifer was asked, you never saw him down in the Lemieux house? She replied, no. But let's say that Karen did see Ronald. It's absolutely possible she did. We can't prove she did not. But even if she did, even if it happened exactly as Karen described, if that's the only person the state could bring up to testify to support the presentation of Ronald as a sexual deviant, it seems fair to say it's not exactly a smoking gun. If this were a notable pattern of Ronald Trimboli's behavior, it stands to reason the state would have more evidence of it, would have been able to find more people to testify about it. And again, if anything, Everything I learned from doing many interviews with people who knew Ronald suggests he was a reformed ladies' man who had a previously very active romantic life with adult women. What the prosecution did have, they would argue, were Ronald's fingerprints in the utility room, on a glass and on the washer-dryer. But Joanne testified she gave Ronald a glass. A glass with his fingerprints was found in the utility room, and Ronald gave a statement saying he may have been in the utility room during a tour of the house. It's also pretty odd for Ronald to just leave a glass there after a murder, isn't it? This is what Detective Ford had to say about that. Then of course we can only speculate, uh, you know, how Ronald Tremboli acted. I mean, did he go into a frenzy until he'd finished what he did and then calm down and, and clean up and, and this kind of thing? Or, or was that glass of water something that, that uh, was a diversion originally? I guess that's all speculation and, and it really doesn't make much difference one way or the other. You may notice Detective Ford saying things like, it really doesn't make much difference one way or the other in some of his comments. We'll explain why he's saying that because there is a very specific reason in a later episode. That glass also had John Bradley's fingerprints on it. Wouldn't it be possible John Bradley simply reused the glass Ronald used? Regardless, many other fingerprints were found during the processing of the crime scene of the house, but those fingerprints, also present at the crime scene, were never compared with other possible suspects like Dennis Mason. Stuart Brosgold from the Arlington Crime Search Unit didn't know who Dennis Mason was. Carl Mallory asked Stewart at the second trial if the police found 40-some-odd prints that they couldn't connect to the victims, Joanne or Ronald. Stewart said yes. Carl Mallory asked if the prints were compared to Dennis Mason. Stewart Brosgold replied, that name's not familiar to me. To be fair, as Detective Ford pointed out, the technology at the time made comparing fingerprints much more difficult than it is today. Back in 1985, if you had a perfect suspect fingerprint, 
you know, unless you had some idea who to compare it to, uh, it didn't do you much good. I mean, you could manually go through all of the fingerprints at the Arlington Police Department, which that in itself would take days. But where do you go from there? I mean, you go to the Fort Worth Police Department or Tarrant County Jail, and you know, obviously uh, none of that's feasible. Now we have a computer where all you do is scan it in, and uh, I mean, it spits out who, who it is. Now, Carl Mallory was allowed to mention Dennis Mason in his questioning at times, but under severe restrictions. The jury would be asked to step out, and Carl Mallory would plead his case to have more latitude in his questioning. Carl wanted the jury to hear the same statement you heard at the start of this episode. If you're not getting all the information, the judge is deciding what the jury can hear and not hear. Understandably so, but some of this stuff was significant evidence to the defense and the judge just wouldn't let. But there was many times during this in the second trial where the the jury was asked to leave. The defense and the prosecution would argue and the judge would decide whether that information was valuable enough for for the jurors to hear it. So nine out of 10 times, the judge would not like, uh, well, no, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna allow this at this moment. Prosecutor Bob Gill argued it was not shown to be relevant, that the defense had not shown a connection between Dennis Mason and this crime Now, technically, Bob is right in a way, but really, how could they? If no one compared the fingerprints to Dennis Mason, how could they possibly? Even if every single one of those unidentified fingerprints belonged to Dennis Mason, no one would ever know because his fingerprints were not compared to those found at the scene. The unidentified fingerprints that could not be explained to belong to Ronald, the victims, or Joanne would remain unidentified. Speaking of fingerprints, There were no fingerprints found matching Ronald in the rooms where Danielle or Renee were murdered, meaning he would have had to kill both of them without leaving a print, but he did allegedly leave a print when killing Bradley. Detective Ford had an explanation for this seeming discrepancy. I'm sure that there were fragments and bits and pieces and smeared fingerprints, uh, but you know, unfortunately, unlike TV, um, fingerprints are just not always usable. And in a particular case, if you'll think about it, if you're putting your weight down and you're leaning down on something and you've got your hand still or whatever, like Tremboli did on the washer lid, well, then you're more likely to leave a good quality comparable print. Then if you're handling some plastic item, uh, you know, like the handle of a, a curling iron or something like that. This brings up another question. A question Carl Mallory would ask the medical examiner, Izam Pirwani, on the stand. John Bradley was found with a pillow next to him in the utility room, a place where a pillow was unlikely to randomly be, making it reasonable to assume it was taken to be used to muffle screaming. Mallory said, let's assume that the assailant or assailants had their left hand on the washer and dryer, and with their right hand, they were stabbing the victim, John Bradley. Would, in your opinion, would they have been able to muffle the cries and noise with a pillow given that hypothesis. Dr. Pirwani replied that if both hands were occupied and the pillow was on top of the body, he found it hard to believe the pillow could be used as a muffle. And the bracing for balance while stabbing was definitely the theory, as Detective Ford says here. 
but those palm prints were situated in such a manner that one would leave those palm prints if they were leaning on the washer lid while they're reaching down and stabbing John Bradley to death. Because we're talking about a very small utility room here that when it has a washer and a dryer in it and also a victim laying on the floor, there's not too much room to move around. And so one would naturally use, use that hand on top of that, that uh, washer lid as support. And so those were, that was a very significant finding. Defense attorney Carl Mallory also spent a lot of time talking to Dr. Pirwani about the average depth of stab wounds and how the averages were different on Rene versus Bradley, suggestive of two knives and thus potentially two killers. After question upon question about the depths of specific wounds, Carl Mallory asked Dr. Pirwani, would these wounds be consistent with two separate persons and two separate knives? Dr. Pirwani replied, yes, sir. Even the local news interviewing an officer of the Arlington Police Department shortly after the murders presented the two killers theory from the start. From evidence found at the scene of the crime, police are fairly certain the killer or killers were adult. We're either dealing with uh, a very large and ominous one person or we're dealing with a group. But Detective Ford felt one killer was plausible. We should note here, John Bradley was high on cocaine at the time of his death and cocaine is a stimulant Dr. Pirwani testified that it would have the opposite effect of lethargy on John Bradley. In fact, Dr. Pirwani testified that the amount of cocaine in John Bradley's body would be consistent with the cause of death for a non-chronic user, though a chronic user could take that much cocaine and tolerate it. Seemingly to try and reverse the possible damage done by Mallory's various lines of questioning that implied multiple killers, Sharon Wilson said to Dr. Pirwani, and this is a direct quote, can you state with a fair amount of reasonable medical probability, whether a person that would commit an offense, assuming it's a human being, would have two arms and two hands. Dr. Pirwani replied, everybody has two arms and two legs, ma'am. Sharon's next question made clear the intention of her line of questioning as she asked, okay, so any assumptions as to what are being done with those hands or those arms are strictly that, purely speculation, conjecture. Dr. Pirwani agreed it was speculation. Dr. Pirwani could also only estimate the time of death within a 12-hour window, testifying that based on rigidity and lividity, all three victims likely died 24 hours prior to arriving at the county morgue, but possibly as early as 18 hours or as late as 30 hours. Ford testified on the stand he arrived at the crime scene at 11.20 p.m., and it wasn't until nearly eight hours later, after seven o'clock the next morning, that the medical examiner was called and arrived. Medical examiner Dr. Pirwani testified that the police agencies are required to call the medical examiner as soon as the body is found. Uh, Dr. Pirwani, uh, you know, his well, recollection that... of the time, you know, like uh, telling, telling that the law states that, you know, you are to call the medical examiner at the time of death. That stood out to me because I couldn't understand why that was a huge protocol that the Arlington police dropped. Detective Ford provided a possible explanation. Well, in this particular case, we had three bodies, which in itself is unusual. So there's going to be three times the work and it's going to take three times as long. 
Um, in addition to that, we had a, a, a very bloody crime scene. And that's gonna slow things down even, even more because we have to use more care not to disturb any evidence that, that was there. And uh, plus, since this was a triple murder and uh, we didn't have a suspect uh, in custody at, uh, on the scene at that time and initially had no idea who the suspect might be, we wanted to be as, as thorough as we could. That's why we used the blood uh, splatter pattern technique. That's why we videotaped the entire crime scene. In addition to videotaping, uh, 35 millimeter photographs were taken, uh, you know, from from every uh, feasible angle. That's why we went to the extra trouble to try to do everything possible. And because of that, it took a lot longer than we normally do. Time of death mattered in this case. Mallory asked Detective Ford on cross-examination if it would be helpful in determining time of death if he knew somebody had seen one or both of the girls alive at two or three o'clock in the afternoon. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram would report that four different witnesses insisted they saw the girls at different times and places that Monday afternoon and evening. A convenience store employee, a man living a block west, and two other people from the neighborhood as early as 2 p.m. and as late as 7 p.m. We have an Arlington Police Department Detective Division investigative report dated June 19, 1985, just two days after the murders, that corroborates some of these details. A grocery store employee, Shirley Bowers, told police she saw Danielle come into her store between 2 and 4 p.m. and buy some gum. Another witness, a young man, Raymond Smith, told police he saw Danielle walking down the street between 5 and 6 p.m. This ran counter to the theory of the crime, as laid out by Detective Ford. It happened after she left work. He was familiar with her schedule and uh, also familiar with what vehicle that uh, that she drove and that sort of thing. And so he just went down there right after she went to work. And I believe she went to work like at 7.30 a.m. or something like that. And uh, that's perhaps why he wanted to tell us that uh, he went to the doctor at 8.30 a.m. Was, was to have an alibi for the time of death. And uh, as far as his wife at that time, uh, she was probably at, at home tending to the sick child, waiting to take the child to the doctor. And, and uh, he left uh, with some excuse. You know, all of that speculation, and you know, it really doesn't matter. Forensic serologist Billy Shumway of the Fort Worth Police Crime Lab testified at this trial as well. And her testimony is extremely confusing. At first glance, it sounds awful for Ronald Tromboli, even definitive. Shumway testified that she identified a semen stain in the bedspread of the bed where Danielle's body was found that matched a subtype of a blood type of Ronald Tromboli. Of course, that seems like powerful evidence, but on the very next page of the trial transcript, Billy Shumway is asked what percentage of the population would also be within the group of people matching this subtype. The answer was 22% of the population in other words, millions and millions of people. If you grab five people off the street, one of them would likely match the subtype. While Billy Shumway did testify that her examination of Danielle revealed semen was present in her vaginal and anal swabs, she clearly stated on the stand in her testimony when asked if she could detect any of these PGM types, again, that's the blood subtypes, from her forensic study of this evidence, she said, I can make no conclusions, no statements whatsoever regarding the semen donor from the vaginal or anal specimen, as everything present could have originated from the victim. 
Right. And they heard, you know, they heard Billy Shumway say what she she couldn't say. She could, in her, when you read that second transcript, you're going to find where she says, I can't tell you if it's Ron Tromboli or coming from Danielle herself. Uh, Yeah. She said, I can't tell you it's anybody because everything on that evidence could have came from the victim herself. Victim herself. After all this, for a moment, it looked like Ronald might actually be acquitted. It's 9-3, and the more they deliberated, the better we knew it was. And then it came back uh, 6-6, and at that moment, that was still good. I felt good about it. It was good. I was a little upset, a little taken back that three other people got swayed, and I was hoping we'd find out what swayed them, you know, years, some years later. But um, 6 6 still for me was good. And the judge wanted. It was not as ask, good as acquittal. No, it wasn't, but it was better than, than being convicted. Yeah. And I, the judge really wanted them to go back and deliberate some more. But the 6 felt that if they were asked to do that, it would be psychologically uh, hard for them to go back there and do what's being, you know, talked about. Because this six, they were locked in on not guilty. And remember, remember also the last note they sent to the judge. They wanted to see the prints on the washer and dryer. That's the last thing they let, and the judge said, ladies and gentlemen, you have all the evidence. What Mark is referring to there, that note from the jury, we have it. It says, we would like to see the prints on the washer plus dryer. And there's a handwritten reply signed by Judge McLean that says, ladies and gentlemen, you have all the evidence. The many experts we've talked to since this, the fingerprint thing, that they would love it if they were able to, cops would love if they're able to bring this into the courtroom, say we had his fingerprints here and here and here and here on a, on a washer and dryer. But we can't, we can't show you where we found them. We didn't take any pictures of it. The evidence has been given away or destroyed. And we're just telling you, you just have to believe us. They were there. Okay. <laughs> There's no pictures of a fingerprint. You- and let me remind you, Ron Trimboli's defense attorneys couldn't even get an expert to look at the washer and dryer because they sold that washer and dryer or they gave back that washer and dryer to Joanne Lemieux, who then gave it to a benevolent, benevolent society before they even arrested anybody, no less Ron Trimboli. So in the end, the second trial concluded with a hung jury. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram reported that at least one juror said the jury had trouble believing just one person could bind, gag, and murder three teenagers. A third trial loomed in Ronald's future, and this time, as you know, he was convicted. What changed? What tipped the scales? I spoke to one of the jurors from the third trial and asked him. You'll hear from him in the next episode. As in many parts of this story, an unfortunate decision, maybe with the best of intentions, would again doom Ronald Tromboli. The photo shows Ronald Tromboli 
at Bush Gardens theme park with a noose around his neck. As a joke, he's positioned himself in the noose, part of some attraction at the theme park. Ron's head is tilted to the side as he playfully pantomimes himself being hung. Ron had found enough rope to hang himself. In the Blood is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Lead reported and written by Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins. Original music by Derlis Gonzalez. Hosted by Ben McKenzie. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. And subscribe now for future episodes.